Good morning, family. If you're visiting with us this morning, we're very delighted to have you with us. So we are continuing in our consideration of the book of 2 Corinthians, and this morning we come to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 2 through 9, which is the passage that Noah would have read to you a few minutes ago. So for sake of time, I won't read that again. But I want to begin this morning by saying something that I, I trust nobody needs proved to them, and that is this, that relationships can be very hard. Particularly when relationships are intimate, close, and trusting, they seem so fragile and so easy to destroy, and yet so difficult to repair. For many, it becomes a temptation just not even to bother after a while. Why, someone may ask, would even the most apparently deep relationships, which can be so easily fractured over misunderstanding at best and betrayal at worst, why should we even have to try for them? Yet if we read our Bibles honestly and with humility, we realize that relationships, particularly within the church, are not an option The greatest command for us is to love God and love one another, especially those who are brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus said that by our love for one another, the world would be able to tell if we were his true followers, not just what we believe, but how we act in love. There is no love without relationships, which will always include some degree of brokenness as well as reconciliation. In our text this morning, we return to Paul's theme that he left us off with back in chapter 6, verses 11 through 13, where he was making an appeal to the Corinthian church to open their hearts wide to him as one who had been appointed by God to lead them and shepherd them in the gospel. Throughout this letter, we've seen that their relationship, Paul and the Corinthian church, has been deeply fractured through misunderstanding and accusation. This entire letter itself is Paul's next step in seeking to win them back, though he had done them no wrong. He was doing the gospel work of peacemaking, and he did not let even their unrighteous betrayal of him prevent him from being like Jesus in pursuing his sheep. And so we begin this morning, chapter 7, verse 2a, his basic appeal, and everything else falls under this, and it is this, to make room in your hearts for us. As Tyler so excellently explained two weeks ago, the heart is a place of desire and affection. Making room for somebody in your heart means to have desire and affection for them. The Corinthians' response to what had unfolded over the last several months had been to push Paul out of their hearts unjustly. At one time, they were open and affectionate toward him, but they had evicted him from that real estate of their affections. The openness they once had to him, now he finds a locked door. As we'll see this morning, some significant work had already been done by Paul to address them on how they had treated him wrongly. But despite the fact that they had sorrowed and repented over their behavior, they did, this didn't mean that they had recovered fully the relationship. There was a, what I've called over the years, a relational bruising 
hurt feelings. And though they had corrected their behavior, Paul was not yet fully in good graces with them. It was still awkward. Paul was not okay with this. He knew the gospel was more powerful than a mere ceasefire. Open-hearted love must be pursued again. And he, in this case, is the only one that is doing it. So let's look at four things in the text together that Paul uses to gain back this ground, this real estate, and their hearts with them, or four things he's going to try and attempt to do with them. First of all, his conscience toward them. His conscience toward them. He says, we... And remember, this is probably the rhetorical uh, we or authorial we by which he mainly means himself. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. So first of all, he, he has a good conscience that in regards to these three things, this never happened between him and them. So he begins with these three things that he's certain in his conscience about his behavior toward the church. First of all, he said, we wrong no one. Now, in this case, wronging someone here means he didn't treat them with injustice. He didn't like intentionally try to do something unjust to them. He didn't try to intentionally hurt them. He did not, like in a secret plan of his mind, secretly, wickedly plan things against them. So he, he doesn't, he wasn't malicious. He's not that. The second term, we have corrupted no one. Corruption here means having to do with acting and speaking in such a way that pulls somebody into sin. I'm, I'm going to lure you. I'm going to seduce you. I'm going to pull you into wrongdoing and into sin, manipulating them into evil, putting their souls at risk. And he can say, we have corrupted no one. We've not pulled anybody by our behavior or our teaching to try to get them to go into sin. The third thing is we've taken advantage of no one. And taken advantage of here is probably related to financial gain that he's manipulated them to get their money, their worldly goods, a way of financial, unjust financial gain for himself. So he says, we haven't wronged anybody by pursuing wickedness. We've not corrupted anyone by pulling you into sin. We've not taken advantage of you. I can say with a good conscience, we never did that toward you. Now, remember, this is the first reason that they ought to make room in their hearts for him. Now, Paul is not claiming here to be com completely without sin. But he can say in regards to his ministry toward them that his desire was for their good, not his selfish advantage. Their holiness, not him dragging them into sin. Now, the question arises, why is it he mentions three, these three specific things? The reason he may be mentioning these three specific things is that these are possible listing, short list of accusations by the man who had previously opposed him. And also the false teachers that had infiltrated the church. It could be that these are just accusations and he's saying that's just not true. He can say with a good conscience that he hasn't done any of these things. And for this reason, he's appealing, open your heart to me again. Now, the application here is I think we see in these three items, three common marks of false teachers. They deal unjustly. They lead others toward corrupt, sinful behavior, and they take advantage of them financially. And I think from this, we should always like, beware of such false teachers from amongst ourselves, from the outside, on the interwebs, and all the rest. Regardless of how popular or apparently gifted they may be, these are those three common marks. And we here also see 
that the mere presence of accusations against a church leader doesn't constitute guilt. Paul is an example of a man who was falsely accused and just because a number of people falsely accused him didn't prove his guilt. Guilt isn't mere assertion. Paul's an example of false exact accusations against an innocent man. If accusations are going to be made, he writes in one of his letters, let it be at the mouth of two or three witnesses, which is not the same as two or three accusers of something they heard from somebody else. So we see that in regards to his conscience. Second, the second thing he uses here is to speak of his joy in them. Open up your hearts because I have a good conscience towards you. I never hurt you in this way. But also secondly, because my joy in you. He says in verse three, I do not say this to condemn you, which may indicate that these were the accusations he, they made against him. And he's saying, not guilty. And it could be interpreted as you're the actual guilty ones. For I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Now, it could be even as the Corinthians hear this letter read, they think that Paul is calling them to account again for their accusations. They could have the impression that he's bringing condemnation against them. They could draw the conclusion that he has become their enemy, become self-defensive, and he's just trying to get back at them. He assures them, however, this isn't the case. He's not writing to condemn them. That's not his purpose. I don't say this to condemn you. But rather, he confesses that they are in his heart and the hearts of his companions. So much so, he says, that we are bound to you, so bound that your life is our life, your death is our death. We live and die together. Like We we are in this deep. And then the second thing he says in this joy, verse 4, are some things that to me are, are, are mind-boggling for a man in ministry who has gone through what he has gone through to then say this about the Corinthian church, which remember, still has a bunch of problems. He says in verse 4, I am acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort in all of our affliction. I am overflowing with joy. So he first of all says he's acting with great boldness toward them. And when there's a relationship of love that has been repaired or a relationship of love that has not yet been broken, that relationship is usually marked by boldness, openness, and plainness of speech. Not rudeness, but openness, boldness. We can speak freely here because it's not like fragile. We know what it is, most of us, I think, if not all of us, to have that fragile relationship or relationships where it feels like we're walking on eggshells. We can't just speak in candor and speak our mind and assume that they're going to assume the best interpretation and we can just freely talk about back and forth. But it's like we got to be careful, not with great boldness. Paul says, I've got such great boldness. We know what it is to walk on eggshells, fearful of offending, incurring the misunderstanding and wrath of another person. Paul is past all that and ready to speak openly. And here's what he's going to say. I'm speaking in great boldness. And first of all, I have great pride in you. He gives three reasons. And these are three bold things he's going to say to them. Kind of shocking things. He gives three reasons in this relationship. First, 
He has great pride in them. Now, again, think through and sweep through in your mind 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians of what we know of the letters and what we know of their behavior and what we know of their drunkenness and what we know of their immorality and what we, do, what we know of the Corinthian church. And he says, you know what? This is a church I'm proud of. And you go, what world is this guy living in? This is remarkable. Given the fact, not only do they have these moral failings of their own, but given the fact that he has been so mistreated by them by name, that he's been falsely accused and supported as the support of a false accuser. He has been misunderstood. He has even been betrayed and, and his apostleship has been called into question. And he says, I'm so proud of you guys. How is this? You see, his love for Christ springs forth in his love for the prodigal church. No, he's not proud of them because they're perfect. He's not proud of them because they've gotten their lives all fixed. He's proud of them because they are a church of Jesus Christ for whom Christ died. He is glad for the way that they responded to his previous letter. And they, though they are far from perfect, far from maturity, he is proud, or the word is, is, can be translated, I glory in you. Like that, that brings him personal satisfaction to think about the Corinthian church and who they are. So that's the first thing. I'm, with great boldness, I'm going to tell you, I'm proud of you. I glory in you. We just see an example here of, you know, any fear that he's going to puff them up and they're going to use that for the purpose of sin or whatever. You know, he's just not afraid of that. Second, the response to his former letter also filled him with comfort. He's proud, but he's also comforted. He was able to see the grace of God in them in regards to how they responded to his previous letter. Despite their monumental and exceedingly personal failures toward him, he was willing to wipe that clean away and be comforted, comforted by their present behavior. It's remarkable. Isn't that how God deals with us when we repent? Well, let me, let me assert it. That is how God deals with us when we repent and every time we repent. He is proud. He glories and he is filled with comfort. Third, so he's really just imitating Jesus here, which is how he can do this remarkable thing with this prodigal church. Third thing, he's in great boldness. Third, even though as we shall see, he had suffered great affliction in Macedonia, their repentant response to his previous letter caused an overflowing of joy. The image here is of a cup that's had joy poured into it, and now it's running over the sides and all over the table. You know, the, the thing that we as parents get nervous about when we see our kids doing, and they I've seen some cute TikTok, I'm not on TikTok, but I've seen some forwarded TikTok videos, and the kid was with his dad, and he's just like, he's got the big gallon of milk and just pours, and dad's letting him learn for himself, and it's just like pouring out all over the table, making a huge mess. And then the next one, you know, they're a little bit more control, but just, but that's, that's the image here. And, 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 and Paul sees pouring out of his heart, the love and the joy and the, and the comfort because of Christ pouring into him. And we, he, as his child sees this making a table mess and God is rejoicing and everybody's happy and laughing. You know, it's, it's funnier when it's somebody else's kid, right? 
my mom used to say, Stevie, if I had a nickel for every time you knocked over a glass of milk, I was always, always knocking over stuff at the supper table. But this is overflowing. He says, I have great boldness. I'm proud of you. I'm comforted by you. And I'm overflowing with joy like somebody, some kid just spilling it all out over the table. And everybody's going, look at that. That's wonderful. Spill it, kid. And what we see in application here is Paul, that is a man empowered by amazing grace. He had been given so much by way of Jesus' forgiveness, and he had experienced, in his own experience with Jesus, he was aware of the awfulness and the heinousness and the wickedness of his sins, and he still just is so blown away that he could be forgiven. The Pharisee in him had been broken, and he's a man that received amazing grace, and as he receives it, it's able to pour out onto others. He's able now to give an abundance of grace to the church who had so badly and intentionally hurt him. Things aren't yet sorted out completely with this church. Not everything is right, but there has been a movement toward making things right, and that is enough for Paul. He hasn't even seen them personally yet. He has not heard them. He hasn't gone into the meeting house and sat there with his arms crossed waiting to see how repentant they are. Let me, let me judge and see the depth. See if you really feel bad. He gets, he gets notice from Titus who visits, it, visits him in Macedonia and Titus says they've responded well to the letter and Paul's over Macedonia worshiping and overflowing with joy. We see a man empowered by an amazing grace. Their hearts are still narrow toward him. That's why he's appealing for them to open them. But the fact that they responded to the letter the way they did had brought him so much joy that he celebrated the victory and told him, I'm proud of you. How's that for encouraging words? A view of good parenting, a view of good pastoring. We see in Paul the fullness of the Holy Spirit This isn't just his personality making him a more cheerful kind of a guy. This isn't his being satisfied because everything had been set right according to what he expected. This is a man full of Christ who rejoices at every evidence of grace he can get his hands on. Which brings us to his comfort in them. Verses 5 through 7. Even when we came came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. But we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. He's now talking about the context in which he was rejoicing because of the comfort that he had received. And he is in a bad way. He's in bad circumstances. But he rejoices. At this point, Paul is honing in on just what it was that the Corinthians had done that had given him such comfort. We saw back in chapter 2, verse 13, that after Paul left Corinth... He eventually made his way to Macedonia, this large land area. Remember that the reason he left Corinth so abruptly is that in a meeting with that church, a man stands up and begins to make accusations against him. And the church begins to go, yeah, yeah. And it becomes so tumultuous. Despite Paul's previous track record, Paul has to walk out of the meeting and leave the city. Because he sees nothing's going to be accomplished. That's how bad of a church meeting 
Now, I've heard about some bad church meetings. God has been gracious in 24 years. Oh, by the way, August 2nd is our 24th anniversary as a church. So we need to celebrate that. Somebody help me not forget that. Um, And there's a lot of other things coming in August, too, that are really exciting for me. But anyway, August 2nd. Uh, I've lost track. Um, Let me see where I was here. Previous track record, accusations. Oh, church meetings. So this church meeting is so bad, the the apostle says, I can't sort out anything here. I'm going to leave. I'm going to go somewhere else. And it, it just leaves very badly. While away from them, he writes this, what has been termed the harsh letter, rebuking them for their acceptance of this man's accusations and their behavior in that meeting. They had received this man's accusations without any real evidence against Paul, and he calls them to repentance. He says, you did unjustly. You know my track record with you. You know that these accusations that I took your money and I corrupted you and I led you into sin, and did, you know this isn't true. Like your conscience is to, and he rebuked them in this relatively blunt, harsh letter. He admits that the letter was heated, pointed, and even harsh, which for some proves guilt, right? If you become defensive, you're guilty. If you don't respond, you must be guilty. Like those are, those are really hard things to deal with. But since sending the letter, Paul himself had been unsettled. He wants to know how they responded to the letter. So he sends Titus to Corinth and says, Titus, go find out how they received the letter. I want to know. And during his time in Macedonia, he says here in verse 5, he describes himself as having no rest. This doesn't just mean sleepless nights. This means he is being tormented mentally, physically, and otherwise. He was afflicted, he says, in everything he did, everywhere he turned. That affliction came from two things that he names. One is the external wars, probably including his, perse- his uh, persecution and people chasing after him, trying to kill him. The things he will tell us about more being beaten, being stoned, being shipwrecked. So there are these external world wars. But he says this also an internal battle with fears. He says fear within. So I've got these outside stuff going on. But Paul has fear that is giving him no rest. And he later in this letter will describe it as anxiety for all the churches. We came, our bodies had no rest. We were afflicted. We were being outwardly afflicted and we were being inwardly tormented by fear. What was the fear? The fear was that the Corinthians, at least one of the fears was that the Corinthians would not respond well to the letter. And that kept him up at night. And he was worried about it. and He was concerned. So this fear included whether his letter to the Corinthians would be effective or whether he would lose them forever. Which brings us to verse 6 and 7. God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus and not only by his coming but also by the comfort with which he comforted us as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me so that I rejoice still the more. So he can't rest, but then God intervenes. This is the God of comfort that he writes about in chapter 1. But God's comfort didn't come to Paul as some kind of a mystical sense of peace. He, didn't, he wasn't in Macedonia and just was praying one night, and suddenly the, the peace of God washed over him and just said, Paul, everything's going to be okay. That, that, that's not what happens in this case. Peace came to him from God by a knock at the door. 
Uh, who's that? Oh, Titus is here. And he's just come from Corinth. Titus, what happened? How did it go? What did they say? And what Titus begins to share with him, that washes over Paul and gives him rest and peace and comfort. God comforted us by the coming of Titus. Not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. So Titus, in the previous meeting, had talked with the Corinthians, and what they share with him comforted Titus, and he carries that. So God who comforts the downcast, comforts the afflicted, gives us that comfort to, that we might comfort others. And so it goes from what God did in the Corinthians in response to the letter, passed on to Titus. Titus carries it across the Aegean Sea. He goes over, he finds Paul, knocks on the door, and brings in the washing comfort of the Corinthians' repentant response. And Paul says, that is God doing a work of comfort in me. That includes human beings and their responses to the ministry of the word. Titus had apparently gone to Corinth, found a repentant people in response to the letter. They were sorry for what they had done. They had believed accusations against Paul without evidence. They had turned against him. And now they said, we are sorry. We were wrong. Titus finds a church longing to be reconciled with Paul, mourning over their failure with a renewed zeal for Paul himself. He told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me. Not just the gospel, not just for Jesus, but his, their zeal for him, the one they had wronged, so that I rejoiced all the more. So pouring out that cup of rejoicing, it's flowing it's over, you know, blah, 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 blah. Finally, kid puts it down and dad hands him another one and says, do it again. <laughs> do it again. I want to see it overflow, pal. So the application here is we see in Paul a faithful Christian who received comfort from God. Paul was not indifferent to how other Christians and how the church responded to him. He wasn't a man who simply said, well, I'll be faithful. It doesn't matter how the church responds. They can do whatever they want as long as I'm faithful. We see a man who rightly defends himself and rebukes them for their unchristian-like behavior. Then he rejoices at the clear evidence of God's grace in them in the sorrow for their failures. And he doesn't hold bitterness against them. He's just like, Titus says, they're sorry, they're repenting. He's like, all right. He doesn't hold bitterness against them. He doesn't withhold his heart from them. He puts himself out there again and pleads for them to open their hearts to him. The problem is not that our hearts aren't open to you, but you're not open to me. We should be, by Paul's example, Christ-like example, because what we see here is amazing, remarkable, supernatural. It is how Christ forgives us. And Paul is saying, if this is the measure by which Christ has forgiven him of his sin, this is the measure by which he forgives others who have sinned against him. So the question for us is, how do we forgive others? How do we forgive and open our hearts to other Christians specifically? Not only to those who have inadvertently hurt us, but also those we know intentionally and foolishly hurt us. Like they meant it. And they come back saying, I'm sorry. I did wrong. I was foolish. How do we forgive others? Is it like Paul? Is it like Jesus? 
It's so easy, instead of doing that, to accumulate hurt like layers of calluses on our heart that makes them harder and harder, not only against them, but against other people. Because we can't harden our hearts towards some people and not have it affect our relationship with others. It's just not possible. Becoming resentful, closing our hearts to the church because of real frustrations and real disappointments, notwithstanding. We need to plead with God for this kind of work of gospel forgiveness, an ongoing deep work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts like Paul experienced and as Jesus models for us. This grace that Paul experienced that released personal hurt and frustration at the cross Knowing that those sins of those brothers and sisters had already been nailed there, there was no vengeance remaining once there was repentance. This alone, Paul teaches us, will free us to love with a Christ-like abandon. That's what Jesus says to us, isn't it? When we come saying, Father, forgive me, the answer is, you have been forgiven at the cross. Your sins and your lawless deeds I remember no more. And Paul simply applying the kind of forgiveness that Jesus gives to us to other people. You say, man, that's awful hard. That feels like death. Yes, it does. That's exactly what it is. It's the death to ourselves to be proven as right, justified, and get vengeance because vengeance is mine. I will repay. And we say in those moments, the cross wasn't enough. This person needs to pay me. So we need this ongoing deep work of the Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, I am confessing it to you as I hope you would confess it to me where it's true. We are in need of a great work in our heart. We have room to grow, certainly. And this comes through our dwelling in God's great love and mercy for us. It's often our inability to do that because of our inability or refusal or forgetfulness of remembering how God dealt with me. Remember the most terrifying prayer to me, I think it's the most terrifying prayer, prayer, is in the Lord's Prayer, at least part of the prayer. It says, forgive us our trespasses as we have forgiven the trespasses of others. Now that doesn't say anything like I want it to say. You know what I want it to say? Forgive us our trespasses because of Jesus. Forgive us our trespasses remembering the great mercy of the cross. No, the paradigm set up there, there is, look at this, God, Father, our Father who's in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we have forgiven. So he says, I need you to measure my forgiveness of others, and then I want you to forgive me in that way. That's the prayer. It's terrifying. And later, when Jesus expands on it, he says, that exact same thing. It's terrifying. That's the one part of the prayer I don't like praying, but I tell you what it does is it crushes me to think if I were to be judged by the way that I judge others, how would God deal with me? And then it reorients me to say the way I want to forgive others is the way that God has forgiven me, and that's what this is all about. And it's hard. It is Impossible, but with God, all things are possible. So what do we do? Do Learn to dwell in God's great love and mercy to us. That's the only thing that empowers this. Discipline won't do it. 
cultivating virtue won't do it. It is only the cross of Jesus and his mercy for us that will ever empower us to make one iota of progress in truly forgiving others. Verses 8 through 9, quickly. He says, even if I made you agree with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. You see, Paul had written a letter that had become the catalyst of change in the Corinthian church. So his forgiveness and willingness to forgive doesn't, didn't mean he just like overlooked the problem. He knew that this problem was going to eat them up. Like it was going to seriously undermine the power of the gospel in their life. So it needed to be confronted and he, his reputation and behavior needed to be defended for their sake. And this letter, he says, that he wrote them made them grieve. They read it, and you know what happens? They didn't get ticked off. How dare he? He accused us. Who does he think he is? Like, they're, they're having a grieving meeting. I mean, they are sad. They are weeping. They are crying. They are burdened down and weighted by, holy cow, what have we done? This means that it made them sorrowful, weighed them down emotionally, affected them with sadness. The work of the Holy Spirit helped them to respond rightly to their sins and the hurt of a Christian brother and leader. The very man who literally had spilled his blood in service to them. I'm talking about Paul. Paul admits that this grief, his causing internal pains to them, had not given him joy. And at first he says, when, when I found out that you were grieved by it, he was like, ah, you know what it's like? It's like the parent who's disciplining their child, who takes no joy in the pain or the difficulty or the sadness that it inflicts. He's not a sadistic kind of, <laughs> now you got yours, that even in the infliction of the discipline and the sorrow that comes, there's sadness in the heart of the parent. And that's what Paul is talking about here. I made you grieve, but I didn't rejoice in your grieving. And he says, at first, I even regretted it. The root here the root word is just simply the word repented. Like, I, I felt sorry that I wrote this letter that made you sad. You see, Paul's not some kind of a hardened, hard-nosed, I'm going to do the right things, I don't care about you. He, he, he does the right thing, and when he sees them sad, he himself is sad. When he sees them grieve, hears about them grieving, he himself is grieved. He doesn't take kind of a sadistic joy, I've been made right, I've been vindicated, he didn't hear about their brokenness and exult in it. Their grief, though it was good, was something that was painful for him. In their pain, he felt pain. And then in verse 9, as it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. It's not the, the tears of the child that brings the parent joy. It's the change of the child to do what is good for them and for others that brings the joy. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss from us. He overcomes this initial sadness he had at making them grieve with rejoicing because their hurt, their sorrow, their brokenness bore the fruit of repentance for real sin. And it wasn't just their being sorry for doing what was wrong. They actually had a change of mind. Metanoia is the word for just having a change of mind. It doesn't mean just a changing your behavior. It means being convinced and changing behavior because of what we think inwardly. Now, Lord willing, we're going to come back next week and explore more of what Paul says about this kind of godly sorrow, especially contrasted to worldly sorrow. But for now, we will leave it with Paul's words that this godly grief caused there to be. And here's one of the most astounding, astounding phrases in this whole thing. I, I, 
no loss through us. Now, what in the world does that mean? No loss through us. You felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. This is something that's supernatural and it is rare. To be in a relationship and then to blow it. Like not just misstep a little bit and be a little bit rude, but I mean to blow it, to really shatter the thing, to really mess it up. Very often when reconciliation has been pursued and gamed, there is still something that will forever be lost. It often never returns to what it once was. You know, you know what I'm talking about? That friend, that spouse, that person that hurt you, and you've tried to forgive and you sought reconciliation, but there's still something that's just lost. I think this is what Paul is referring to. The thought is, it never returns to what it once was. There's still underlying hurt, suspicion, and even lack of trust. You hurt me once. You know, you get that, but I'm not going to let you hurt me again. There's something lost. The thought is, if you hurt me once, you will probably hurt me again. Therefore, I will never give everything, all of myself to you again. But Paul assures them with him, this isn't the case. You suffered no loss through us. Their grief and repentance. And again, here's the gospel, isn't it? Because we betray Jesus. We do wrong things against God. And yet believe that every time we repent, the relationship is fully and completely and freely recovered. Paul knows what that is between him and Jesus, and he's applying it to other people. He does this not by seeing it for himself, but he, remember, he does this even from a report from a man from a church he had not yet even seen. And he says, well, here's what I can guarantee. When I come back, that room in my heart for you, there's, there's not one corner, one square foot, one side table, one lamp, any part of the room that was once your room in which you inhabited in my heart, everything is still there for you. Paul models for us a gospel-empowered ability to let go of hurt of being disappointed by others. It is a miracle to be able to love so deeply, be hurt so badly, and yet let go so completely. And there is, brothers and sisters, nothing but the work of Jesus Christ in us, our being immersed in him, that can ever produce this kind of fruit in our hearts. We, we ought not to try any other way. There's just no other way. So as we close, let us make much of Jesus. If this sermon tells us anything, is like, I mean, I look at Paul and I'm like, I want to be like that when I grow up. Don't you? I mean, how many of you, you don't have to raise your hand. How many of you are, no, I want to be bitter. I want to break off. Rela- I mean, I get it. You might feel that way because of the pain, but you know that's not admirable. I mean, you wouldn't admire somebody like that, I think. You wouldn't say, that's the model kind of person. If, if the world had more of those kinds of people, we'd be so better off. You know, you know the model is someone who can forgive so completely, though offended so deeply. And what this sermon is about is that power made known through the human vessel, Paul, to the church at Corinth by the power of the Holy Spirit because of Paul's relationship with Jesus. Not just a good theology about Jesus, 
but an experiential re relation with God that he knew that his sins and his lawless deeds were remembered no more. There is no one like Jesus, brothers and sisters. Let us pray earnestly for the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, begging God that our calloused, hurt, crusty hearts would be renewed again by his grace. And brothers and sisters, as this tells us, let us love one another, for love is from God. He who loves knows God. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers and sisters. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for this astounding love that we long, long to experience more of. We recognize we can't walk out of here and just muscle up and determine and try harder. Lord, it's only as we understand your love toward us and experience that and are floored by it and washed with it that we will have the resources that look foolish and naive and ridiculous to some people to be able to have relationships that we have unfettered love especially when we've been hurt, when we've been broken and betrayed. So I pray that we as your people would bask in the glory of the good news of Jesus. I, I pray that you would please work in those who uh, are here without Christ, that they would know that all the things I've been saying about mercy and forgiveness are true for those who are in Christ. But for those outside of Jesus, there is the wrath of God hanging over them and a fearful day to come of judgment and terror and, and, and fear and awe, and that, that would be the very thing that causes them to flee for refuge to Jesus as a, as a safe house from your justice. So please, please bless this word as we've heard it today in Christ's name.